You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, then please consider helping out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, before we get started in the podcast, let's start things off with a shameless plug. Uh, this is for our Patreon page. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you and you would like to see the podcast keep going and remain as ad-free as humanly possible, please consider becoming a patron of our show. Go to patreon.com slash Island and sign up. Uh, patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new show of The Curse of Oak Island. And I got to tell you guys, that chat is so much fun. It's a great time this week. Bunch of people on there and uh, some really insightful stuff, which I which you'll hear about as the podcast goes on here for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, so come and join us. Let me thank our new patron, Shelly, for uh, joining us this week. Thank you so, so much. Welcome to the Diggin' Oak Island family. And again, folks, uh, go to patreon.com slash Oak Island to sign up and support the podcast. Remember, it's only five bucks a month. You can cancel any time. And if you prefer not to do sort of the monthly thing, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. I am a musician by trade, and that's sort of my virtual tip jar there, so you can do it that way. And John, thank you so much for your incredibly generous donation this week. Uh, I really, It's been great talking to you, and um, I can't thank you enough. We're going to hear from John in the uh email portion here in just a couple of minutes. So let's get to those emails. Uh, we start the podcast with uh, a friend and a fellow Jersey boy. Here's Peter who writes, why no talk this week of previous voids they found? They sent divers down years ago to check out chambers at the bottom of 10X and C1. And just recently, Maddie did a special on uh, best boreholes and even put a camera down C1 to check out a void at the bottom. Hope I have this straight. I think you do, Peter. Uh, yet last week, Marty said nothing has been found like this new void. Why no recognition of these previously discovered voids and no discussion of comparative depths and whether they might connect? Of course, lots of wishful thinking about things looking man-made. Peter from South Jersey. Peter, bringing the heat to start the show here for sure. It's incredible, isn't it, when you think about it? How many divers have been in quote-unquote voids in the money pits? It's been a couple, you know, and I'm not even including Dan Blankenship and the things that he did. I mean, he went down those things himself, um, yet we see none of that here to help us sort of put all of this new stuff into context. Are those old caverns comparable to this one? I mean, I would assume so, but perhaps there is something very, very different about them as well. But how would we know if the show doesn't even bother to mention them? What bothers me is I feel like sometimes when we see things like this, we're all being treated as if this is the first episode we've ever watched, right? Like there aren't thousands and thousands of fans out there who've been watching this show for years and all know darn well that there have been many water-filled voids explored underground in the money pit over the life of just this show and also at great expense to the team and at great danger to the people who went down there. So the short answer, Peter, I have no earthly clue. I mean, this would seem a perfect, they do so much recapping of previous work, you would think, think this would be the perfect time to do such a thing. Maybe one day we'll actually go back to this cave. Remember they told us last week they're not going to be able to do it or they didn't think they would. But maybe one day we'll go back, do a proper exploration of it, you know, 
maybe one day, I don't know. But if they don't, you know, if we never see or hear of it ever again, then I guess, Peter, like I usually say, you have your answer. Great stuff, my friend. Always great to hear from you. Okay, now I talked about John before. Uh, He follows up an email he wrote me last week that I talked about with one this week. You have to go back and listen to the earlier podcast, last week's podcast, to uh, get up to speed. But just so for those of you who remember, you might remember just from talking here, he writes, thanks, Dave, for answering my email. Above is the new mantra of the island. And that was his uh, the title of his email, uh, which is something like, this may be it. <laughs> Tiresome and mundane fits very well. Last night's show, 110.23, may be the most tiresome and mundane that I have watched. I'm thinking the island may be that way for the participants because they seem to have a lot of free time. About who may have buried the treasure, I was thinking if they can dig down 100 feet and make tunnels centuries ago, it confuses me why, with our sophisticated equipment, they can. Uh, Yeah, John, uh, and if that is the real point, you're not at all wrong. These guys have thrown more and more into the money pit in their short time on the island, spent more money and brought more resources to bear than anyone before them, and still nothing really to show for it. I can certainly see why viewers would be starting to get skeptical and even maybe a little frustrated. I've been saying this for a long time, right? But here's where I'm coming from, just to repeat myself here. When this show began 10 years ago, and I was, you know, unbelievably excited to watch it, I had absolutely zero expectations, none, that they would actually solve the mystery. I I mean, none. I had no hopes whatsoever. I mean, listen, I knew beforehand that people have been trying to do this for over two centuries. I had no delusions of grandeur that somehow the History Channel would be the ones to do what has been the impossible for, for decade after decade. So essentially, this, what we're seeing now, is kind of what I expected out of the show. Although, I will admit that the show has gone on much longer than I thought it would, and Prometheus and the History Channel have invested way more into the show and the dig itself than I ever really thought possible way back in season one or even two or three, right? I guess I was really at the time just thrilled to be able to watch the Oak Island treasure hunt for myself, and I still feel relatively the same way about it, if I'm honest. So again, I have every year that goes by, no matter what they throw into it, I really don't have an expectation that they're going to solve the mystery. I don't really believe the mystery can be solved by digging. That doesn't seem to be, um, I don't think there's going to be anything down there. That's I don't give a lot of theories, but that's my theory. I don't think there's a treasure chest waiting for them. Uh, Anyway, John, you also sent another email about the Templar historian, Tony McMahon, which I just wanted to reference here for you personally. It's a little message, guys, to uh, to John. I'm not going to read that all back to you guys, but John, let me uh, say it like this. You don't need Tony McMahon or anyone for that matter, really, to tell you just how incredibly good the Templars were at engineering and architecture. Um, just look at what they've built, right? The castle, the underground workings of all these places. And, and I think you'll also come to the conclusion that digging an underground treasure vault on Oak Island would be well within their level of ability or expertise. And being a religious zealot, which they were, you can also kind of find motivation in that too, right? Um, and to do it at great personal risk. Anyway, great stuff, John. Talk for soon for sure, my friend. John and I have been having this great discussion about the Templars, which I kind of gave you a little hint to there. Um, and uh, maybe I'll, uh, I'll let you guys in on it soon enough as we've been going back and forth for a couple of weeks here. Uh, let's go now to Katie who writes, Hi, Dave. Katie again. I have a lot of questions this season. 
arsenic bronze. Now, back in the day when I was at school in chemistry, we looked at ancient metals and their origins. If I'm correct, arsenic bronze originates from the Middle East, stretching as far as Thailand. But I don't see, I don't understand why this is not mentioned. Uh, all they say is it's not English or Spanish. Surely its origin is important, uh, is important in relation to the artifacts that have already been found. I think this only the second artifact of this metal composition found. So does that mean we are back to potentially believing that a treasure may be of religious nature? It throws me to question the British and Spanish artifacts may have been a recovery mission. Would love to know your thoughts. Would like to also add the editing this year is bloody awful. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Uh, Katie, the reason they don't mention it is because of the same folks responsible for the last sentence you wrote. The reason they don't mention that arsenic metal was used all over the world and from the Middle East is exactly what you're saying there, because the editors don't want it to be mentioned, because that doesn't fit into the uh, narrative du jour, right? The, the thing of the day. That's where we come in, I suppose, this podcast, right? Now, with regards to your question about religious possibilities and um, any potential recovery mission, I would only say that at this point, anything is possible. Uh, it's all on the table, all these decades later. And I don't think of things like that with Oak Island necessarily. I can't say we could be talking about a recovery mission when I really am at no, by no means convinced there was anything ever there to recover in the first place. I'm not sure this mystery, and I believe it's a mystery, even ends with a treasure or something like that. I simply don't know. As I said to you before, I'm starting to believe more and more every year that there's nothing down there to find now. Doesn't mean there isn't information. There's no spendables, as Dave Blankenship used to say, uh, down there uh, to find now. I do believe that the best treasure theories that I've heard over the years do often include a possible recovery mission sometime later in their story. I mean, at this point, it makes the most sense, right? Especially when the chances of there actually being something down there, a treasure down there, seem to get smaller and smaller with each passing year. Um, I hope I'm making sense here. Uh, great stuff as always, Katie. I love your questions, so please don't stop sending them in. Every once in a while, I really do love talking about theories and the possibilities. And a lot of times we spend a lot of time here talking about, uh, you know, the details of the show, which is what we're really into. Uh, but I love kind of getting into that stuff, too. Anyway, uh, next we hear from our friend Gloria, who writes, Dear Dave, a while ago, a friend with connections checked into the location of the artifacts found by Robert Young when he owned Oak Island Lot 5. He was told they were in the archives of St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and were not available for view at the time. Best regards, Gloria. <clears throat> Again, I say this all the time, but how great are the listeners to this podcast? I mean, honestly, I know I give you guys some stuff to think about, but without the podcast listeners, without you guys, this show would be half as interesting and informative, if even half, right? Uh, Gloria, great Great stuff. Maybe I'll try to track that down and see if that is in fact the case. It makes a ton of sense because if you look at the photos of what Mr. Young found over at Lot 5 in his years there, there really isn't anything of much value. Uh, again, no spendables, as Dave Blankenship would like to say. It's mostly a lot of stuff that looks an awful lot like 99% of the historical facts, uh, the stuff that Gary Drayton finds just every day on Oak Island, right? It's almost entirely what I would call you know, historical artifacts, um, the kinds of things that belong exactly where you suggest, in a museum or, you know, a university. Hopefully the guys can access these things, um, and then maybe we'll talk more on that during the episode recap. Thank you again, Gloria. Great stuff. Thanks for that information. Okay, 
Let's finish up the emails with an old friend of the show, Jock, who writes, Hi, Dave. I am almost exclusively using your show to keep up. The last show I saw in Canada was where they got the bad news about the garden shaft being shut down. Come on, Marty and Craig. You ran an oil business for years and now wind power. You also have a vineyard. All these industries need government permits. Lots of them. You should have made sure all the T's were crossed and all the I's dotted. I would expect that Dumas has lawyers and know the permitting complications with governments. I see their company headquarters is in Toronto. They have a lot of experience, but why didn't Laginas pick a Nova Scotia company? They might know the permitting people better and the possible regulations that created this complication. The government would have smiled by using local miners. The History Channel would have lawyers as well. Okay, let me interject here because he has got a couple other things to to talk about. Um, I didn't think of this at the time, right? But since you mentioned it, Jock, yeah. These guys and what they do for a living when they are not on Oak Island, this seems like a like a pretty big unforced error to me. I mean, I don't know the the nature and the exact details of all this. Um, maybe they just left it to Dumas and don't really know much about it, didn't get involved. But let me say it like this. Could you imagine Dan Blankenship not looking over the shoulder of literally anyone working for him on Oak Island? No. Uh, He would not have allowed such an unforced error. He certainly wouldn't have taken it so easily. Um, Anyway, it just, again, I'm not, no, I don't know if it's what I'm calling an unforced error, but it sure seems to be on just about everybody's part. Jack continues. You also know that the Zoom meeting with Marty was staged. They seem to be more calm than I would know, than I would knowing this comp about this complication. I'll stop again. They all did seem very calm, as we mentioned. I mean, after the government stepped in last year at the swamp, we had episode after episode of nothing short of belly aching. And that stoppage was, you know, for a good reason, for historical reason. This one seems to be due more to clerical clerical errors or bad communication, I guess. Again, I can't imagine Dan Blankenship taking a mistake like this very calmly. Uh, Back to Jock. Also, the section where they ran the sonar into that cavern was interesting. I think there were five people speculating what was down there. Square rocks, etc. Notice something. No geologist was present. This was crazy. They talk about the science on the show, and they only use it when it conveniently supports their expe- their speculation. By the way, I think that cavern is one of the natural cavities within the limitation within the limestone and gypsum that created the sinkholes in the area. Gordon Fader would agree. Yes, he would. Uh, these Swiss cheese rocks allow the salt water to percolate under this island as the tide changes. Natural flood tunnels, not man-made. All the best, Jock. Uh, all right, Jock. Let's make it uh, two things you point out here that I guess I didn't notice last week. I don't know. Maybe the crown time for me started a little early during last week's episode. Who knows? Um, yeah. Where was Terry Matheson for all of this? I mean, honestly, you put a sonar into an underground cave that you just looked at and weren't sure whether or not it was man-made or not, and you don't have the resident geologist there to take a look at it? I mean, he's the only one on the island that we know of. Maybe there are other people that we don't see you know, that are behind the camera, but he's the only one on the island we know of qualified to actually render an opinion worth listening to. But let me just say this again. I proposed this last week, too. What if Terry did indeed look at it, said he believed it was likely just a natural feature? So the editors then cut that out, cooked up a quote unquote, not enough time or money narrative to continue the project. 
just so that we're sort of left as viewers with more mysterious and unanswered questions about a potential underground feature we never actually learn the truth about. I'm not saying this is what happened, but it is possible, right? And it has been done before. We know that they have speculated about artifacts and things found, and we have later debunked those things, but that debunking never makes it to the Curse of Oak Island. Uh, every once in a while, it makes it to a Maddie Blake show, but it never makes it to the Curse of Oak Island. I'm thinking of the Roman Pilum. I'm thinking of the Swagger Stick. These are two things that were disproved uh, pretty pretty fully, and only one of which ever made it, th that disproving ever made it to air, and that was only if you happened to see one of the preseason shows where Matty Blake mentioned it quickly as he's walking along the beach. We never actually heard that the Swagger Stick was a lipstick cover. Um, <laughs> you know, so they are guilty of this because they didn't tell us those things because they wanted us to kind of remain, um, puzzled. We want, they wanted a mystery to remain inside of us in our brains because that helps keep the mysterious, um, quality to the show. Great stuff as always, Jock. Love hearing from you as always. Um, that's all for the emails this week. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, just email me digginoakisland at gmail.com. Right, it's time now to discuss Season 10, Episode 9 of The Curse of Oak Island called A Damning Clue. And here is a little theme that is going to, re to kind of reoccur as we go through this episode um, this week as we talk about it. And that is the theme of comments by members of the cast, which Dave found very interesting. Uh, and they seem surprisingly candid because they appear to sort of hint at something that over the years... The show and the team perhaps have not been totally comfortable with openly discussing, right? Certainly not on air. You'll see what I mean as we go along. I'll call them quotes Dave finds insightful. <laughs> Let's begin this week with discussing the work done over at the Money Pit. The episode starts at the Research Center, and this is a meeting between Rick, Marty, and Craig, along with Steve Guptill and Scott Barlow. The general point behind this meeting is to discuss what the team will do now that the Garden Shaft project is on hold due to permitting issues, as we discussed earlier. There's a lot of recap in this scene, talking about tunnels from the earlier in the year and all that kind of stuff. And then Craig suggests, um, makes a suggestion that they go back to something they discovered way back in episode four of this season. And that is a potential tunnel found at a weird depth, 70 feet down borehole D-17. Now, if you don't remember this, I'll just quickly, the team found wood in this D-17 hole at a depth which seemed very shallow because they were at the time chasing this other tunnel that leads, you know, north to the garden shaft area, which was down at 108 feet in that range, you know. And because of the 70-foot depth, there was a lot of talk by Marty and people about an offset chamber, if you remember that. Now, later in the episode, they had this wood that they found carbon dated and found that it was most likely from the 18th or 19th centuries. Uh, remember that as the story goes on. The dating that they gave us was possibly pre-searcher, although they made it look as though it absolutely was pre-searcher. But if it could have even been from the 20th century, if you looked at carbon dating. Uh, and after hearing them, you know, 
but it's all, again, it's also just as possibly from the searcher era as not from the searcher era. But the first question that comes to my mind after hearing them go on and on in episode four about how this wood could be pre-searcher is then why did it take the garden shaft project being shut down for them to actually go back to this discovery in quotes on D17 and follow up on it? I mean, if they think this is a, a possible offset chamber where the treasure is, I mean, it seems weird to just sort of put it aside and then only go back to it when you're trying to find something to do with yourself, you know? Anyway, so the team decides to dig a new borehole in this area to see where the possible tunnel or this offset chamber might lead or what's inside there. So we next see Terry and Charles, Bar Terry Matheson and Charles Barkhouse back at the money pit digging a new borehole named D17.5. Now, soon they find wood at 39 feet. Remember, they were thinking they would find it at 70 feet. So this was also a surprise. And Terry concludes from the depth and what the wood kind of looks like here that it's not a tunnel, but instead they're going into a shaft and down a shaft. And here comes the first of a couple of quotes that I told you about before. Quotes Dave finds insightful. Charles Barkhouse, upon finding this shaft, says, quote, You know, there is so much we don't know about the money pit. There's a number of tunnels, a number of shafts that we know nothing about, end quote. I mean, what a rare and candid omission on Charles's part, probably one that he makes all the time, but almost never makes it to air, to come out and say that. The show makes it seem like everyone knows everything <laughs> on this island, you know, like, and therefore every unknown thing found on Oak Island must have been from the people who buried the treasure as if we know everything about all the searcher activity. But Charles is telling you right there, that is just not the case. We are often led to believe that these guys and that someone somewhere knows the entire history of the Oak Island treasure hunt, every shaft, every location of every shaft, and that really the only thing we don't know about are searcher things and where the money pit is. But that is actually not true. No one really knows all of this stuff for sure. Not even Charles Barkhouse, whose job it is to know as much as humanly possible. In fact, Marty Lagina comes on the scene and makes another comment Dave finds insightful. And he says that this looks like, quote, yet another unknown searcher shaft, end quote. So see, folks, there are a lot of unknown searcher shafts. And as we go through these borehole processes and we find wood, when we speculate that it might be from the original depositors, I mean, because they say we don't know of any searcher work done here. Well, they might not know about it. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. And they are well aware of that. So really insightful stuff. The wood appears to be old, this wood that they found in D17.5, and not just from what it looks like, but also from the reason that it was apparently cut by uh, not by a sort of post-industrial age power tool, but instead by what's called a pit saw, which is basically the way anyone would cut big pieces of wood for centuries before power tools really became a thing. Billy Gerhardt comments, quote, the shafts you don't know about should be a lot old which I think he means older searcher shafts that are likely undocumented, like we've been talking about. What we've come to discover over the years, uh, just to kind of send home this point, is that many Oak Island treasure hunters failed to document some of their work over the decades, but the pre-1900s ones really didn't document um, anywhere near all of their work, um, except kind of the projects that led 
that they could either claim as success or they could, um, you know, use as uh, a carrot in front of the horse, the horse being investors, right? So you could see what what Mar- what um, Billy's saying here. The shafts that you don't know should be a lot older because really from about the 1900s on, we do know a good percentage of that, but it's the stuff before that really becomes difficult. And then we run into that problem with the carbon dating because if we think that the, uh, you know, the, the, the money pit was built in the 1700s of some kind. Well, if somebody's doing work in the 1800s, in the early 1800s, using wood in a searcher shaft, that wood, when it's carbon dated, will have a wide range that would include both this mysterious searcher time and pre-discovery of the money pit. You see where the problem comes into play. So further down um, in 17 D17.5, down to the depth of around 100 feet, they find even more wood. And Craig comments here that this piece of wood seems perhaps intact enough to actually do some tree ring dating, what they call dendrochronology. Uh, it's a way more accurate way of dating wood than carbon dating. And they've used this um, this dating time many times before. They were using it with much success, especially in Smith's Cove. Hopefully this testing gets done and we see it and we can find out if this is exactly uh, actually, you know, something to get excited about here. Let's head now to the swamp in lot 10, which includes the northern edge of the swamp. Remember last week, Fred Nolan's son, Tom, had requested that the team look into something his father claimed to discover decades ago, a sort of what he called damming structure along the beach on the north side of the swamp. Last week, they brought in a man named Stefan Grund to do a ground-penetrating radar scan of the area, and um, he is now on a video call with the team to discuss the findings from that scan. Uh, Grunge shows that there was there is indeed a, an anomaly, to use that word, of some kind in this area, right where Tom was talking about, which appears to be somewhat linear from what we're looking at here. And there looks like there might be a couple, one at three feet and one down at eight feet. Guys, am I reading that right? Um, I'm not sure if I, I'm, I'm, it's not supposed to be the same thing. It looks like there's a separation between the two. That's what I got out of it. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, these meetings are so chopped up sometimes it's hard to tell. Uh, the details of all of what he's trying to say here and get it all straight. Either way, these results don't say much to me, really. It could be a lot of things, I guess. Uh, I mean, they go out of their way not to say it looks man-made or anything like that. But, I mean, why not get a better look, right? You got a digger. You probably got tons of them. So, uh, you know, take it over to the lot 10 and have at it. But before we head out to the beach, there was yet another quote Dave found insightful in this scene. And this one came from Rick Lagina who, who uh, was talking about a possible damning uh, structure Fred claims to have found. And he says in this quote, quote, I think Fred was truthful about probing such a structure. This is fascinating phraseology from Rick. Why does he say Fred was truthful when no one was bringing up Fred's honesty? No one was questioning his honesty here in this, but yet he offers the fact that he believes he was truthful. In my mind, it's a little insight into what many think about Fred Nolan's years in this treasure hunt, that perhaps he had a tendency to exaggerate his claims. Again, they don't like to discuss this openly for obvious reasons, 
but it's out there. And here's a little look perhaps behind the curtain into what they might really think. Now, maybe I'm making too much of this. I just find that phraseology from Rick to be very interesting. Next, we see Rick, along with Peter Fernetti, Doug Kroll, and Steve Guptill, joined on the beach at the north end of Lot 10 by the aforementioned Tom Nolan. Doug breaks out Zena Halpern's map again and points out that right about where they're digging, the map says, quote, unquote, the dam. And then we get another of those quotes Dave finds insightful when Doug says about the map, quote, we are trying to judge this map on its merits. We don't know its provenance, end quote. Again, Another fascinating admission by the team. Now, they've made this admission once or twice before, but this time it's Doug, who's often portrayed as something of a big proponent of the Halpern map. And here he is himself admitting that the authenticity of the map is most certainly in question by scholars. Uh, We know it is even in question by the Oak Island team as well, like I'm saying, Um, but it's also very much in question by, by scholars. Jeff on the Patreon wrote, quote, Zena's map shows the dam and the purpose of the dam, as speculated by Fred Nolan, was hiding the SS Matty Blake. It's all coming together. The SS Matty Blake being my little pet name for the ship supposedly in the swamp that isn't in the swamp. Uh, I'm pretty sure you were being a little tongue in cheek there, Jeff. But if not, Merrily also said, quote, I like how they are looking for the wall or barrier in the swamp. Looks like all these theories are coming together. I cannot believe we are back to talking about a man-made swamp and Xena's map. Listen, guys, I I think you agree with me here when I say it like this. Um, They continue to talk about this stuff. No matter what questions come up and no matter how many times things are disproven, it is incredible that we're still talking about Xena's map and not talking about it in a way of actually trying to investigate its authenticity, which I think is the first thing we should be doing. Um, But hey, I'll say it like this. If they find a dam here, then, you know, you guys are both right. You know, if nothing else... Finding a dam here would cast a very new light on the map, at least in my mind. You know, they, I mean, they've looked for other things, right? The hatch and all this kind of stuff and have come up with nothing. So if they can find one, then maybe I'll start to think about whether or not they should be looking for the rest. All right, let me, let me go on with the scene here. Soon the digger starts digging and Gary is metal detecting the spoils as the dirt comes out. He finds a fairly large iron pin and later pulls out a piece of wood the guy say appears to be covered in oil. Now, the implication here is that this oil must be, or this wood and oil must be from a very old ship, one that would have been covered in oil along the bottom of it to sort of seal it and also to keep the worms and barnacles off the bottom. And I say that it's very old because um, oil was used before tar, or as they call it here in the scene, creosote, which becomes popular in the 1700s mostly. My immediate thought was this might be from a shipwreck, and Claude on the Patreon seemed to feel essentially the same way as he wrote, quote, you are in an area where hurricanes have been known to hit, but a spike couldn't have ended up here, end quote. That's what I mean. The, the spike, the the um, the wood, all of this could just be something from the beach, you know. Um, they dig a bit further. They find no signs of a dam as far as I can tell. But let me say I agree with the decision they make here to start filling or filing some permits to get to do a bigger dig in this area. In my mind, the wood they found is interesting enough to warrant at least a slightly more thorough look. 
Again, sure, they didn't find a dam, but they found what appears to be very old wood treated for the purpose of being submerged. Seems like uh, enough for, you know, to me, for Billy to bring in another one of his toys and do some heavier digging. It'll be interesting to see if we actually go back to this project later in the season or if this is it. And the reason why I question that is because notice another thing they didn't come up with. They didn't tell us what that anomaly was. They dug here. They looked here. Well, what was the cause of the anomaly? Was it just those pieces of wood? Was it something in the ground? What was it? You obviously just dug right through it, yet we don't hear anything. Now, before we take a break, let me say there are two things that stand out to me with this segment. Two questions I think we need to ask after seeing all this. The first one is, why has this never been done before? (laughs) Why has no one looked for what is possibly a dam that Fred Nolan says he found over his decades of searching in the swamp? One of Fred's most popular theories was the swamp was man-made and he claimed to find a dam and no one bothered to check if it's really there. I mean, he made all these claims about the swamp, including this one, which is one that's very easy to go and look for. I mean, all you need is a shovel and no one thought it was worth the time or the effort to try and confirm Fred's claim, which might prove the entire man-made swamp thing. You know, this theory that they talk so much about on this show Over these years, nobody's bothered to look, not at any point in the last five decades or however however long it's been since Fred made this claim. Fred himself never dug up here. If he did, where where is this, you know? And that leads me to my other question. What is Fred's evidence for this claim? And why didn't we look and examine that evidence first? Now, of course, the answer to this does inform the answer to the previous question, right? But... Perhaps no one looked because there wasn't really much reason to look, not much evidence to support the claim. We don't get from Tom exactly why his father thought this, but clearly Tom and Rick don't believe there isn't any evidence for the claim. Clearly, they must have some reason to do this. So why not tell us what that reason is, what that evidence is? I have to tell you, I'm not sure about this one. I hope they prove me wrong. And let's finish up over on lot five. The recently purchased lot the Lagina started exploring for the first time ever last week. Again, we see Rick and Gary metal detecting and Gary finds an unidentifiable piece of metal that really looked like a big metal acorn to me, if you ask me. Uh, And then later finds what appears to be an unfired musket ball. Nothing earth shattering um, in either of these items. But the real fascinating stuff comes when we see the team following up on an item found in lot five last week. Now, if you remember, Gary and Rick found a coin last week. Well, they found what is actually a piece of a coin, what we call a cut coin, a coin that was sliced into pieces to use as sort of change, you know, to portion off the coin and what its value is to use at at smaller, smaller levels, smaller portions of it. They determined it was very old since it was made with traces of arsenic. And today they have brought Sandy Campbell into the interpretive center to have a look. Sandy is a numismatist, which is a kind of a fancy way of saying a coin collector. I guess maybe a, a better a better way of saying it is coin expert. That might be a better description, but I think it has to do with collecting mostly. Sandy is intrigued by the design on it and first says it is, quote unquote, pre-1500s for sure. Then moments later, he drops a big one on us and says he thinks it is perhaps Roman or maybe even Byzantine. 
even though he's using words like possibly and my gut here, you know, even though he's using these sort of phrases in this conversation, it seems that the takeaway we're supposed to have is that this expert believes Gary Drayton found a Roman coin on Oak Island. Now, interesting that the first question Alex asks, which I'm sure many of us were asking as well, was, quote, what is it doing here? And that that question, the interesting part is that that question essentially goes ignored and unanswered by Sandy, at least in the sh- in the show. Right. Maybe maybe Sandy did answer it and we weren't given that answer. But in the final quote Dave found insightful in the episode, Laird Niven is brought over and asked if there is a precedent for finding something like this in Nova Scotia. And he says not in Nova Scotia, but certainly along the east coast of the United States. In fact, if my memory serves, Dave's memory serves here, even as close as the coast of Maine. Now, why did I find this quote from Laird so intriguing? Two reasons. One, I think it actually answers Alex's question. And maybe what we what we didn't hear was Sandy say a similar thing. But two, because I kind of feel like it almost slipped by the editors, although of course it didn't, right? Um, but I say... You know, I say that because it would have been very, very easy for the editors to have simply cut it off at not in Nova Scotia and just left it at that. But instead, they allowed Laird to tell us that maybe this isn't all that earth shattering a find, that Roman coins have been found all over the world, even as close as a ferry ride away. And for good reason, too. Right. You know, it makes all sense. Let me try to make this clear for you. The Roman Empire, and I'm sure you know this, but just, just so that we have it in front of us, the Roman Empire was around for around a thousand years, a thousand years, folks. There are untold millions and millions of Roman coins that were used during their lifetime of the empire, but also for centuries after its fall as well. And these were used all over the world, circulated everywhere. I mean, There must have been thousands of different types of coins minted and circulated over just century after century, right? Let me say it like this. It is unusual to find a Roman coin in North America here, for sure, right? And this one, uh, and, and finding one in this particular place may even be unprecedented. But it does not mean the Romans came to Oak Island and buried a treasure there, because all the other places these coins are found that are not in Italy and, you know, places of the Roman Empire, and they have been found all over the world, doesn't mean the Romans or the Templars were burying treasure there either, right? Steve on the Patreon kind of put it really funny. He wrote, quote, it was a three-way death match between the Romans, the Vikings, and the Templars, and Oak Island was an arena, was the arena. I mean, sure, Steve might have been having a laugh there, but he's not wrong in doing so. Because we have to take a step back and sort of say, wow, this is a really cool find, but huh, I mean, what does it really tell us, right? I mean, and that's true with a lot of this stuff. These finds are great, but let's be honest. How do they help tell the story of the Oak Island mystery? That's the question that never seems to get answered. How does this coin inform the Oak Island mystery? Alex Lagina's attempt to connect this to a Roman-era stone road in Portugal made no sense to me at all, and I wish they had taken that out. I don't even know what he was trying to say. I guess he was implying that the coin, I don't know, the coin must have been picked up off the road by one of the Templars, and he put it in his pocket of his robe and brought it here, and it fell. I, I don't even know what he was trying to say and how that connection was being made. But you know what? 
let's go back to uh, let's go back to the lot five artifacts and our uh, and our friend. I think it was Gloria, right, who uh, who told us about the artifacts being at St. Mary's University. Um, you know, maybe there is a path here, right? Maybe the answers we're looking for lie in these other items that were found on Lot 5 over the years by the previous owner, Robert Young. This one coin tells us very, very little, but perhaps getting access to Young's other stuff, his collection, and giving those items the very same attention they gave this cut coin might provide us with something more, a bigger story, something that we can put into context, something that tells us how a Roman coin made it to an island in Nova Scotia. And more importantly, if it actually has something to teach us about the Oak Island mystery. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Dig in Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, you can really help keep the show going by becoming a patron. If you think this show is worth five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And if you prefer, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. Also, if you would like to help out the podcast in another way, then you could do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Big thank you to everyone who has done that, um, who has left us those ratings. I really do appreciate the kind words. And also, if you want to make a one-time donation, you could do so via Venmo at my virtual tip jar, uh, and that is uh, at Dave McBride Music. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Diggin' Oak Island. And if you have any questions or uh, comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggin'oakisland at gmail.com. Well, as Dave Blankenship used to say, it's crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island.